thank you for tuning in to another episode of the Bakari Sellers Podcast. 2020 is nearly done. I hope everybody has a very, very special holiday season for those of my friends who were serving, just celebrating Hanukkah, or in the words of the the legend Smokey Robinson, Chinooka. I don't know if you all saw that viral cameo video, but to all my Jewish brothers and sisters who are celebrating, wishing you a happy Hanukkah season. To everyone celebrating Christmas coming up, Merry Christmas, uh, Happy Kwanzaa, and I think that we're all ready for a very new year. Today, I'll be joined by my sister and friend, producer, director, writer, Lee Davenport. I've known Lee for a very long period of time, and we are professional enough to not tell secrets about each other in public platforms and settings, but just know I love Lee Davenport with all my heart. She's one of the dopest, kindest, sweetest individuals you'll ever meet. Plus, she's uber talented. But before uh, we get to Lee, I wanted to talk about this COVID spending deal that came together this past weekend, because I think it's important to understand what it is, what it's not, what it tells us about the road ahead in terms of what kind of help we can expect from Washington in 2021 as we continue to battle COVID. So here's what's in the package. A whopping $600 stimulus check for people making less than $75,000. Eh, I think $600 is a funny number. It's kind of, for me, it's the number uh, that I guess rich people think that the rest of us think is a lot of money. Well, we'll have to deal with that. Uh, We have an historic expansion of Pell Grants, which is actually a very, very good thing. $300 per week for 11 weeks and additional unemployment benefits. That's not bad. New PPP money for small businesses. That's not bad. Food and rental assistance, money for vaccine distribution, and a host of other relief measures. All good things. Late and not quite in the amounts we want, but it's something. Here's what's not in it. There's no aid to local and state governments for the money they've lost in the pandemic. So you can see your state and local government furlough employees. And if you're a state or local employee yourself, unfortunately, a furlough may be in your future if it hasn't happened already. There's also no liability protection for companies, a major ask of the business community that they be shielded from liability under federal law if employees or customers were to contract COVID at a place of business. What this tells me is that we're still likely to see a similar package or maybe even two in 2021 from a Biden-Harris administration because $900 billion seems like a lot. But in all honesty, we're talking two to three months of relief until we get this next administration and next Congress in place. So we should expect a much, much larger deal in the first few months of 2021, which is good. I've always said on this show, and you've heard it, that we need three to four trillion dollars. They were at 900 billion. So as you hear the news this week on the current COVID package, know that there will be another one and know that you'll actually have an administration lead on the next one, as opposed to a president and administration that whines and lies about an election they lost and outsources their homework to Congress. We've got 31 more days, y'all. We're almost there. And I can promise y'all it'll be so much better than what we have. But what we all know is that's a low bar. But this is a space to watch. And please be sure to be on the lookout for good information on what's in the package so that you, your family, and your business can tap into the relief that I know we all need right now. And that's that on that. Now on to a conversation with my sister and friend, Lee Davenport. This episode is brought to you by Viore. I love sports. I know you do too. I also know that lots of you exercise, but if you're like me and my wife, the, the beloved sports gal, 
you're sick and tired of ugly, uncomfortable workout gear, especially, you know, I do a lot of walking. I walk around LA. I make calls. I listen to podcasts. Here are two words that will change everything. Viore clothing, a line of activewear that is unbelievable. The best thing about Viore is you can lounge around in it. You can work out in it. You can go outside. You can go shopping down in your local wherever. And you never feel like you're either underdressed or overdressed. You're just comfortable. You can wear it when you're training, traveling, lounging around the house. Go get yourself some of the most comfortable and versatile clothing on the planet. Here's the deal. Our listeners get 20% off their first purchase at viori.com slash Simmons. Once again, V-U-O-R-I.com slash Simmons. This episode is brought to you by cars.com. When you add your car to your garage on cars.com, you'll unlock access to real-time insights into how much your car is worth. Plus, view its historical and projected value to decide when to sell. So when the time is right, you can secure an instant offer from a local dealership or sell it yourself on cars.com. Start tracking your car's value with your garage on cars.com. Well, I have the privilege today of having on the Bakari Sellers podcast, somebody I go way back with, like almost 20 years. That's how crazy it is, the 2001. Ooh, you're good dating fr- us. I know, we're getting old. My good friend, Lee Davenport. What's going on? How are you? I'm great. I'm so glad to be here with you, sir. I'm glad you were able to make some time for us. You know, on this show, we like to, people just sometimes assume that individuals arrive where they are uh, kind of mysteriously. Um, but I like to walk people through our guest's career arc. So right now you're a writer, a producer, and a director. You're a real triple threat. Um, walk listeners through the arc of your career from your first job out of Spelman to now two major projects debuting in 2021. Uh, wow. Well, <laughs> uh, right after college, I moved to New York City, uh, where I started as a production assistant at VH1 in the news and red carpets department, which was kind of weird and fun. I, you know, at Spelman, I was, you know, editor-in-chief of the newspaper and I was a writer and I did magazine internships. And I really thought I was going to go into magazine writing. That was my goal and aspiration. But as you may recall, when we graduated college, magazines were like just, you know, crumbling, you know, title by title. It was the death of the magazine industry kind of coincided with our emergence into the world. (laughs) And I was like, oh, well, there goes all my hopes and dreams. Um, So everyone was like, you know, you might want to pivot your focus. And so I said, well, you know, I still want to tell stories. And I really liked at the time VH1 was doing a lot of pop culture documentary work. And I thought that was interesting. And so I, you know, found my way there, uh, worked there for about a year. And then after that, I worked at BT in another kind of news and red carpet for about two years. And then I left that and did some kind of talking head shows and um, some segment producing until the market crashed. And then no one worked for a while. <laughs> <laughs> Moved to Africa, produced a show there. Came so back. Where, you just came, I mean, you just can't drop that. Where, where did you go? It's a pretty large continent. Where did you go in Africa? What show, <laughs> what show did you produce? I moved to South Africa is where I was based, but I went to nine countries on the continent while I was there. Um, the show that I produced was called Many Nations Won Award. It was for a music channel called Channel O, which is, I think, all over the continent. 
And so it's basically like kind of like an MTV type of, they have music awards or like a BET awards thing. And so we went to countries where the nominees were and interviewed them in their homes and kind of did, it was kind of like a half like cribs, you know, my block thing, plus learning about their music and who they were as artists. Super fun, amazing job that was crazy and one of the best experiences of my life. That's pretty dope. You've you've done a lot, so you just didn't appear on the on the brink of having this kind of worldwide breakthrough uh, next year by happenstance. You literally put in the work. That's pretty impressive. A lot of college students listen to the show, and I know a lot of folks want to get into media careers, but the path to these careers aren't linear, and they require years of far less glamorous work. For the listener that wants to be a writer, producer, director like you, what's your advice to them? Other than to have great friends like Bacardi Sellers <laughs> and Clark Jones. Uh, and <laughs> I think, you know, my suggestion is that you learn as many sides of the business as you can. You know, a lot of people think I want to be a writer. And then the only thing they know is how to write. And I think if you really want to have a successful career, you know, production is a huge business. You know, there's 200 people on every TV and movie set, if not more. And so, you know, you should know, have a good idea what everyone's jobs are, what everyone does, what everyone brings to the table. The more equipped you are to understand all of the various sides of a production, the better you are to write one, to direct <laughs> one, to produce one. You know, it's hard to excel at a job that requires 200 people if you only know what five of them do. So take a job anywhere. Take a job in wardrobe, take a job in hair, take a job as a PA, take a job as a lighting you know, person, take a job as an assistant, take a job anywhere in a production, even if it's not specifically the thing that you want to end up in, just to start learning what it means to do this work. That's crazy because you know I've only been like a you know, AB list actor my entire life. So I'm usually, I, I'm usually the, the focus is usually right here. So I, I, I don't even know what everybody does on the set. So that's good to hear. Let's talk about Run the World. I, I'm going to run this trailer. Uh, another round? No! Remember when we were 21 and we could get in at five in the morning and just shake it off? No, I have very few lucid memories of my 20s. I know who I am. I got this. <laughs> Apparently, I missed the window for everything because I spent my 20s cooking, cleaning, and fucking my college sweetheart instead of that guy. <laughs> you are a black girl in America. Head up, eyes on the prize. World domination. World domination. Tell people the Cliff Notes version about what's uh, what's the show about. Sure. So the show is loosely based on my life post-college in New York with my friends. A lot of us all moved to Harlem specifically. We wanted to live there. We felt like it was kind of a, a, a place, a sacred place for African-Americans and a place you wanted to kind of put your feet on if you were going to go make it in the big city. Um, and it's a neighborhood that I fell deeply, deeply, deeply in love with. And at the same time, you know, was living my 20s with a lot of these, you know, super smart, talented friends of mine from Spelman and from other places who were working in all tons of different industries and striving and really ambitious and really hungry um, and having a lot of fun also. And I felt like, you know, this show's been swirling around in my brain for more than 10 years now. And when I really decided I wanted to do it, it was because there was a 
a lot of negative press about successful black women and the single successful black woman is never going to find a man and you're never going to get married and you're so miserable. And, you know, it was just kind of like these people have no idea what they're talking about because me and my single successful single girlfriends were having a blast. Like we're having all the fun. And I was like, someone should see the other side of this. You know, someone should know that we're having these crazy, you know, interesting lives and you know, I just, no one was having a hard time dating anyone and no one was having a hard time finding partners, you know, doesn't mean it all ended up glamorously great, but we were definitely having a good time. I mean, we're all still single now, but you know, (laughs) we had a lot of fun while we were doing it. We had a lot of fun. I mean, I think that was really what I, I zoned in on was I felt like I was being told that black women were in a state and thus I felt like I should be in a state. Like, should I be freaked out about where my life is going? Am I never going to get to have all the things that I want? Because that was the kind of dominant theme that was circling. And so I wanted to create this show that celebrated, you know, my friends and celebrated Black women and celebrated the journey and celebrated how much fun it is getting there. So a lot of people always say that me and my friends, we should be some type of show, a sitcom. How did you, how did you go from a thought in your head to having a show on TV next year? Uh, I wrote a lot of drafts of a show. <laughs> I wrote. Did your hundreds. friends know? Did your friends know that you were documenting their lives? Yeah, I mean, I think I, I've been working on this for so long. My, all of my friends, you know, know that like at any point I'm gonna whip out my phone, and if someone got a really had a really great line or a really great joke, it's going in my notes pad. Um, and, what's, you know, my, I, what's my name? In the, is it, am I Mr. Big? <laughs> am I Mr. Big from far away? I mean, is that what? <laughs> TBD, stay tuned. Uh, okay. All right. I can't wait. <laughs> um, no, I mean, a lot of the language in the show is language that's ours. You know, or things that, you know, we've all joked about. Some of it's stuff college. And I mean, there's certain, I know specifically you'll key in on when you see it. I mean, I think, you know, I was always creating like what this show should be in my head based on the interactions I was having with my friends. And I did table reads and I wrote, you know, I had actors come and read it, you know, in little theaters so I could hear it out loud and just kept workshopping it. And everyone that would read it, I would ask someone to read it and give me notes. And I wrote it again and I wrote it again and I wrote it again. And then ultimately I quit my job here in New York and moved to LA and really went 100% in on this was the thing that I wanted to do. And then I wrote it again and again and again and again. <laughs> and I remember like there was one time when I finally finished the draft and I was like, that's the one, you know, that's, that's, I got it now. You know, I figured it out. I put in the hours, like, this is it. So you're the, I know she's on set right now for everybody wondering. Right, she's guys, not, she's not, is, she's not out, outside in a, in a construction. <laughs> uh, so tell me this, uh, when will it air? Where will it air? Et cetera. Uh, the show is going to air in the spring on stars. I think it'll be April, May ish. So we'll see what the ultimate drop date is, but it's going to be a Sunday night show Mm. and it's going to be, and stars is global in 50 countries now. And the app, you know, it'll be on the app at midnight on Saturdays, but it'll air on Sundays on television. And it's going to be, I think a lot of fun for a lot of people. I think we've had a lot of fun making it. And it's really going to bring a lot of joy in a much needed season of dread and awfulness. Are you, are, is that what you're on the set of now? Are you on the set of yeah, something? Yeah, this is actually um, the, one of the girls' apartments that 
That's so dope. This is, I'm yeah. so proud of you. So I want us to go through a, a quick media one-on-one for our listeners. You're the creator and co-executive producer sure. for Run the World. What exactly does an executive producer do? Uh, an executive. So we always laugh, like, what does a producer do? Um, and it's basically like 1000 things. Like (laughs) you are a babysitter, you are a writer, you are a set designer, you are an art curator, you are props (laughs) identifier. I mean, literally every single aspect of the show comes before your eyes. So as the executive producer of the show, you know, you're paying attention to literally everything from, you know, do we like the way that what character's hair is curled? And for this scene, you know, is there too many books on the desk? Um, or, you know, is that shot too wide or too close? You know, you really, and that's why my earlier advice is take a job, any job at any level, because ultimately at the highest levels, you're responsible for everything. And mm. so you really have to have an eye and a kind of at least some touch knowledge of every single thing that's happening because all of those things come back your, past your desk and people want to know, you know, do you like this color of paint on the walls? <laughs> you know, and, it's, and you, you have to have an answer. And if you don't like it, they're going to change it. I so, mean, I like, I like the salmon behind you. That's a good, good color. <laughs> oh, I, we liked it too. It's actually based <laughs> on a real apartment. But yeah, I mean, an executive producer you know, every single casting, music designs, you know, art design, production sets, wardrobe, air makeup, you name it. It all comes through us to, you know, make sure we're building a cohesive vision of the project overall. Like we know what it should look like in every aspect. And so all of those things have to come through us to make sure they're being executed to, you know, really fulfill and serve vision. What's a showrunner and why are they so important in Hollywood? Um, a showrunner is essentially what it says. It's the person who runs the show. <laughs> I think. Thank you. you know. Thank you for that definition. <laughs> I know. It's funny because people literally ask, it's like, what does a showrunner do? It's like, they run the show. I think, you know, in my situation, it's been really, it's different because I'm the creator of the show and an executive producer. But, you know, your showrunner is ultimately the person who's responsible for delivering this content to the network and the buck stops with them. And there's a lot of money that goes behind these things. And so that money needs to be spent the way it's supposed to. You want to make sure your show does not come in over budget and that all of the things are met and that, you know, the network gets their scripts on time, gets their cuts on time, gets their show on time is delivered, you know, at top notch quality. And, you know, that's, you know, your showrunner is the person where that's the buck stops last, you know. The, the last question I have along this kind of one-on-one uh, media one-on-one theme is, you know, uh, a lot of my listeners are less familiar with the mechanics of television. What does it take to land uh, a deal like yours with a major television studio? I don't want to overstate it because I think it's more attainable than people imagine, I think you really just need a great concept and a strong script. You know, for me, the script that I shopped for this series also got me two movies and, you know, agents and representation and and really jumpstarted my career overall. And so you really should be arm yourself with the best weapon, which is a great piece of writing or a great directing clip 
or, you know, something, a great work sample, you know, one really amazing work sample can change your life and open all of the doors. This episode is brought to you by Viore. I love sports. I know you do too. I also know that lots of you exercise, but if you're like me and my wife, the the beloved sports gal, you're sick and tired of ugly, uncomfortable workout gear, especially, you know, I do a lot of walking. I walk around LA. I make calls. I listen to podcasts. Here are two words that will change everything. Viore clothing, a line of activewear that is unbelievable. The best thing about Viore is you can lounge around in it. You can work out in it. You can go outside. You can go shopping down in your local wherever. And you never feel like you're either underdressed or overdressed. You're just comfortable. You can wear it when you're training, traveling, lounging around the house. Go get yourself some of the most comfortable and versatile clothing on the planet. Here's the deal. Our listeners get 20% off their first purchase at viori.com slash Simmons. Once again, V-U-O-R-I.com slash Simmons. This episode is brought to you by 20th Century Studios, Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. As a ruthless king builds his empire at the expense of the remaining human race, a young ape will fight for the future of apes and humans alike. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Enter the kingdom in IMAX this Friday and in theaters everywhere. Get tickets now. This episode is brought to you by Atlassian. Atlassian software like Jira, Confluence, and Trello help power global collaboration for all teams so they can accomplish everything that's impossible alone. Because individually, we're great, but together, we're so much better. Learn how to unleash the potential of your team at Atlassian.com, A-T-L-A-S-S-I-A-N.com. Atlassian. Tap the banner or visit this episode's page to learn more. So let's talk about one of your other major projects debuting in 2021, The Perfect Find, a movie that you wrote that will air on Netflix in 2021, starring Gabrielle Union, adapted from the Tia Williams book by the same name. What's the movie about? It's a rom-com. It's really cute. Uh, Is everything you do woke and whimsical? Uh, yes, hence the name of my company. That's where I live. And uh, we can be both smart and have joy space. We can be conscious and still have a kiki. You know, you're the king of the good time and, and the conscious life. So I know you feel me. Um, I do. I, do. I, I that's why these, I, these movies and your, your rise, uh, it's so needed right now. It's just like, this is perfect timing for you because the country needs more woke and more whimsical together. It yeah. is, it is. Yeah, that movie is fun. It's like a rom-com, Gabby Union starring in it. It's a younger guy, older woman romance, which of course is very apropos for her real life. Um, <laughs> it's New York and it's set in like the magazine business and it's fashion. It's a little like Devil Wears Prada kind of uh, vibes meets like inappropriate relationship. It's super cute and should be really fun. I think people will really enjoy it. And when, is, when does that come out? They are not filming until the top of next year. So I don't think it'll be out until the fall or maybe the winter 21. I know they're in prepo right now and I think they're set to start filming in January. So is it easier to write a screenplay when there's already a book or do you feel like as a writer, sometimes it's more straightforward proposition to write something from your own head instead of adapting a screenplay to someone else's work? Uh, I think they're kind of the same beast. I mean, usually when you adapt a book, you have free reign to kind of make it yours. You know, in the case of Tia's book, so much of it worked really well and her voice is really funny and our voices are really similar. Oddly enough, I happen to have interned for her 
that's, you know, 22 years ago um, after my junior year in college. And then this came around and, you know, complete coincidence. But I think that project, like, you know, for me, I was trying to keep the integrity of the story that she created for sure, which can present some challenges because there are definitely situations where it's like, well, if this was mine, I may not have had the character do that thing in the first place. And so you are kind of like, how do I make what's already there work for like my own sensibilities and work for a movie, you know, because you could do lots of things in a novel, which are nonlinear and all of that, that do not make sense on screen. But I think creating your own story is just as difficult because you've got to plot out all of the pieces and you've got to imagine, you know, all of the places that this character is going to go and how to motivate them in a way that feels real and authentic and not convenient because, oh, I need them to do this now. You know, I think the fun thing about when you really get to writing is that the characters start doing things you didn't expect. Mm-hmm. Like they become real people and then they're like, oh, they wouldn't behave this way because they've become this person now and this person wouldn't do that. And so you're like, Ugh, I had that planned, but he doesn't want to do that. So now I can't make him do that. You know, it sounds crazy, but you really do start like negotiating with the people in your head. I have to I have to be on some uh, I need some edibles to sound like a, if I'm a moving to my right because <laughs> <laughs> this sounds like it takes a lot to get to some of these places. Uh, so, you know. After you did this, if the as if the Netflix film and the sitcom weren't enough, you also wrote the screenplay for the Wendy Williams biopic <laughs> that will air on Lifetime in January. We, we will run the trailer on that as well. <laughs> oh uh, I mean, this is a fucking podcast full of trailers. What if I turned into Siskel <gasps> and Ebert? Crazy. It's your girl Wendy Williams on the mic. I am here to stay. Wendy Williams is not going anywhere. I'm going to come in like a hurricane. So, Whitney, are you still using drugs? Who wants to give you a talk? Millions of people turn on the radio to listen to me. You're the star. I am going to tell it like it is. I'm becoming a real business. And I've been trusting you to take care of all of that. You're self-indulgent. You're narcissistic. You got a coke habit. He's having a baby with her. Before I had you, I had me. And not you, nor anyone else have the power to take away my gifts. I'm gonna bring the heat. I will turn this city out. But what what was the process like writing out the life story of an iconic but interesting personality like Wendy Williams? And does she still like you after you wrote it? Uh, questionable. Um, (laughs) don't know what I have to text her and see. Um, no, I mean, this was project was actually pretty fun. And like, as you can imagine, a little crazy, you know, lifetime reached out to me. I like to write complicated stories about black women and Winnie Williams is nothing, if not a complicated. Did you write before or after Um, the divorce? It was right before, right after, like kind of like as it was happening. So I like flew to New York and I had just had my daughter was like eight weeks old. And I'm like at Wendy's new apartment that she just moved in after getting rid of her house. And it was a thing. And so she told me lots of stories. And then Mm. Wendy wrote a book years ago, which was really helpful for the early life stuff because she really did do a great job chronicling that and Wendy brings the heat. But then she told me lots of stories and we talked and then we got on the phone and got more stories and more talk. And it's a really interesting process because I think 
she was then and still is now negotiating how she feels about what's happened in her life in the last, mm-hmm. last couple of years. You know, like divorce is crazy. And when she's been with this man, you know, for 20 plus years and they have a son together who's an adult. And so it was kind of like this weird thing where I felt like I was very closely watching something that I really shouldn't have been able to see, which is like a real person trying to make peace with, you know, infidelity and the loss of their marriage and being, I think she had a birthday. She turned 50 something or other when I was with her and just be like, this is not how I was supposed to celebrate my birthday. Like, this is not what I saw. This is not the life that I'm supposed to be in, you know, based on all of how hard she's worked to build herself to who she is. So it's a little crazy. It was like, <laughs> it was like a little Man, intense. I can't wait. How, now, you can't write? This ain't no two-hour movie, is it? It's an it's an hour and a half with commercials. So, no, it's not that. It's it's der- certainly not long enough. And I do That's think That's what I was going to say. I would, I would think this is three, three, four days. It could be a miniseries for sure. I definitely feel... I, I know that Black Twitter is going to be like, y'all didn't tell us about this. And you didn't do this. You didn't do that. It's like, look, it's a Lifetime movie, you guys. <laughs> like, it's like, we got to do what we can do. But I think there'll be some new things people weren't aware of in there. And I saw a cut of it last week and it's it's pretty fun. I mean, honestly, like you never know what these things too, as a writer and not the director, you write a draft and then you kind of release it into the world and you're not sure what it's going to look like when you're done. Yeah. So it was nice. They let me see a cut. And I was like, all right, lifetime, you know, we, we okay. We'll see. <laughs> how hard so are that, you after you saw the cut? How hard on them were you? I mean, I think, you know, in this instance, it's such a big story and Wendy's so iconic. Like, you really can't be hard on them. Like, the things that they got right, which was a lot of it, if not most of it, were really well done. I mean, I was about to say, like, I was, you know, expecting that it would be pretty good. I knew all of the players that were involved. Um, The actress that played Wendy, though, she's excellent. I thought she really did a great job and she just brings, you know, I, I like in and biopic casting when the person doesn't necessarily look exactly like them, but they embody their energy. Yeah, yeah. And I think, you know, she did a great job capturing the Wendy of it all without mimicking her and trying to, you know, That's do an impression dope. of her. Um, I think the audience is going to be fun. I'm like nervous because like, it's crazy. I'm like, I have my own TV show. Like everyone, everyone's like, so about that Wendy <laughs> lifetime movie. I'm like, everybody wants to talk about the Wendy movie, huh? That's right. Okay, guys. That's right. I right. say, I'm a, I'm a, don't tell me. I'm going to watch it to see if Charlemagne <laughs> the God is in it. I just want to see. I want to see. Hey, I spoke to Charlemagne actually when I was running That's my guy. Charlemagne so I can't, is, he makes I can't, a quick appearance. I can't wait. Yeah. All right. Walk us through your creative process. How, how do you like decide that a project is worth your time? And when do you, how do you get it from ideation to pitch-ready concept for networks and streaming platforms? Gotcha. For me, it just has to be something that I immediately resonate with. I've never been a wishy-washy person. True. Um, Fact so check, true. <laughs> <laughs> I'm kind of like, either I feel that connection, it speaks to me or it doesn't. And for me, what speaks to me usually is voice. If it's smart and funny and kind of complex, like I'll, even if I don't necessarily think right away, I want to do the project, I'll still mark it in the like maybe column just if the voice is unique and interesting enough to me. After that, then it's like, all right, well, what kind of project? What does it look like? How much time commitment will it be? You know, all of those things. But really, like, I look for things that kind of live in a space 
where it's a little bit pain, a little bit pleasure, kind of grief, kind of comedy. You know, I really do like kind of an intersection and a collision of emotions and things that I do. Um, So there's a project that I'm really interested in right now that's about a 40-something-year-old woman who unexpectedly loses her husband. Mm. And she wrote a book about it. And like, I read the book and I was cracking up the whole time. And that that speaks to me, you know, it's like if you're writing about the death of your husband, suddenly he dropped dead of a heart attack and you've got me laughing the whole time. I'm probably interested in your voice, you know. So I like I like projects like that. And then the process is really like we I do a real then determination. Is there a place in the marketplace for this kind of story? That's important. Are people looking for this kind of story? Do I know of either a network or string service who would hear this pitch? And that's something that I we can sell because I have no interest in putting in the kind of time that it takes to really bring a project to be ready to go to market. And there's no chance in hell anyone's going to buy it. So you really do look at the marketplace, look at, there's so many different places to put content now. It's obviously like a much different space, but it's like, if there aren't three possibilities that I genuinely think they will buy this right away, then I'm probably not going to take the project, you know? So before we get out of here, I got a couple more questions for you. What do we need to do to diversify the pipeline of talent that we're creating and telling more Black stories? And where do the next 100 Lee Davenports come from? My biggest, you know, And don't say Spellman. I mean, I, I, I can <laughs> guess they Spellman. All, they yeah. all come from Spellman. <laughs> uh, no, my, I would advocate the most for infusing productions and this space with talent in every area. I mean, I keep back to that, but it's really something that's crazy. I mean, a lot of these jobs are skills and they're like trade skills. I mean, learning how to light and learning how to do set design and production design. These are skill jobs. You can't go to school, right? And learn how to be a scenic. You have to be in the space practical. And I think that the biggest thing that we can do is infuse these spaces with diverse talent at every level in every department throughout productions, you know, I think that it gets very focused on, well, where's the next director or the writer? Sometimes those people come from someone who was a gaffer first or someone who was, you know, doing set design. I mean, you just have to nurture the like awareness and knowledge of us being in the field. We're not in the field. You know, I mean, it's not like we're not just, we're just not getting opportunities. We're not in the field. We're not PAs and we're not, you know, running in the sound design department and we're not in the editing teams. We're not there. We're not even, I don't think we're even exposing enough of us to understanding what those jobs are. That These are great, well-paying jobs that you will always have work and you will have room to, you know, move up and ascend in your career. It's just a complete lack of knowledge, a lack of opportunity, because there's a lack of knowledge that there is opportunity. You know, we not, we have to blow open the spaces and give people access to, you know, jobs all over the industry. So we've got Run the World coming out April, May, 2021. We've got The Perfect Fine with Gabrielle Union. And we have the Wendy Williams biopic. <laughs> uh, Happy New one. Year. Here's I Wendy. So, <laughs> shit, can, so look, my student loans, dude, can you let, can you float me something? 
<laughs> oh, please, Mr. CNN <laughs> analyst. You uh, went on TV you know, way are. longer than me. I'm are. over here trying to make it out. I see your fancy. This is a fake apartment I'm in. That's your real house. I see your setup yeah, back this there. This is all, all my wife's <laughs> setup right here. She looking at me sideways because I, I, I set up in the good dining room and she looks at me I can sideways. see. So what's next? That's my last question for you. What do you, I mean, you got all of this going. I mean, but we got to keep it going. You got a, a, you know, a beautiful family and all this other stuff. What's next? Yeah, there's definitely um, a couple other projects that I can't speak on yet that are in the pipeline. I'm looking forward to a movie opportunity that I know you'll be really happy about if that all pans out. And, um, you know, there's a, I have a, I'm executive producing on a show that I'm pitching right now from a young writer, to your point, that I've been working with for a couple of years. I'm really excited about her show and getting her show placed at the top of the year. And, you know, there's just stuff floating in my inbox. She didn't answer so, nothing. We'll see where that we last end. question, she was like, man, a whole bunch of, I can't tell you. That's fine. I can't tell yous. I know there is a lot of I can't tell yous. But obviously, of course, the biggest thing is the series coming out in 2021. Looking forward to, you know, hopefully a really quick renewal into season two and going to make more of these really awesome episodes with this incredibly talented cast. I wish you all the luck. And everyone that's uh, a Ringer fan and at the Bakari Sellers podcast, we got to make sure we support my good friend Lee Davenport so we can get season two, three, four, five, all (laughs) of those things. At least five or six. That's where I am with it. All right. Well, thank you so much for joining. I know you're so busy and you're sitting on set today, (laughs) uh, working hard in a blizzard. But thank you so much. It's always a pleasure. So, again, before I let go, I'm going to start singing that in every outro. I I have one more thing I wanted to talk about, and that's two recent developments in the past week around the NCAA. First, this past Wednesday, the Supreme Court agreed that it would hear a case in March or April of 2021 challenging the NCAA's restrictions on compensation for athletes. On background, previous cases from lower courts found that the NCAA's ability to limit how much student athletes can get paid for their labor violated federal antitrust law. Should the Supreme Court rule against the NCAA, that would allow conferences and individual schools to engage in a broad range of activity from revenue sharing to compensation for athletes to paying for graduate school and study abroad opportunities to paid internships for student athletes. This past week, we also saw Senator Booker, a former college athlete, propose a college athlete's bill of rights that would, among other things, give every athlete and a handful of revenue generating sports a share of profits they generate from lucrative television and apparel deals, provide lifetime scholarships, government oversight of health and safety standards, public reporting of booster donations, unrestricted transfers, and create a commission with subpoena power to ensure compliance with the new law. This is in addition to dozens of similar state bills. Now, the NCAA should see the writing on the wall, but I'm sure they'll fight this. They could allow for revenue sharing now. They could loosen restrictions on compensation now. They could do lots of things, but they don't because they're, eh, at best, probably considered a cartel. And the best thing you can do with a cartel is to break them up. And that's what we need to do with the NCAA. We often talking about breaking up Facebook and Google and Amazon, but I want the same energy when it comes to the NCAA. And it looks like we're getting there. And it's a development that we should all welcome. And that's that on that. Thank you for tuning in to another episode of the Bakari Sellers podcast. Happy holidays and Merry Christmas to all my listeners. We're taking a break and we will see you after this holiday season. Be safe, be blessed. 
and be merry.